Two weeks ago, we started the book of Ephesians, but we haven't even touched the book yet, really. Okay? You might say, well, that's typical fashion with you. We're used to that by now. Okay? I take that as a compliment. That's okay. But the biggest question that we're trying to answer here is, who is Paul? Many times we study a book of the Bible, and especially if we walk in with with an epistle. An epistle is just another fancy word for a letter. But we walk in and we have the person introducing themselves. They don't do it like we do letters today where they address the person they're writing to and then they bring their name at the end. At this time, they would bring the name of the author up first, who they're addressed to, and then what are the major considerations that they have or that they want to communicate. When we talk about the Apostle Paul, what are some of the things that we automatically think of? I'm curious. What's that? Paul. Paul. You sure? Okay. So he started out as Saul and then became Paul, which is what we're looking at. That's good. What else? He's what? Somebody over here said it. The, the, the Damascus Road, big experience, right? In fact, I, I, I had assumed this for the longest time, and he says, I was like, yeah, Paul got knocked off his donkey. And Isaiah, Isaiah looked at me and goes, there's no donkey in that passage. I'm like, what? So I had to go back and look. There's no donkey in that passage. I wanted a donkey in the passage. That is my sinful heart of unbelief adding to God's word. There you go. What else? Yes, sir. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. What does it mean to be an apostle? Does that mean like you're in a gospel quartet? Tonight at Grace Bible Church, the apostles. What is it? Dedicated? Well, maybe. Called? Called by who? Called by the resurrection Jesus Christ personally is what makes somebody an apostle. Do we have apostles today? No, we don't. Yes, Pam. Well educated. This guy knew his stuff. He wasn't just, as we saw, he wasn't just born as a Jewish citizen, had an understanding of the heritage. He also, everybody hold on because this was a big deal in Kentucky, he went to school. That's right. He did. And his learning was good, right? He was trained in the law starting at age five. He began training about what it was to be a Pharisee at age 10. And then around age 13, he began to learn methods of how to go about communicating all of his learning to others so that it could have a trickle-down effect, so it could reciprocate itself. So he's not just learning knowledge. He's learning method, style, all of that stuff. Pretty incredible. He was zealous. Well, he wasn't a zealot, but he was zealous. You ever met a zealous person? That's the person where you're standing back going, I wish they would have said that. That's the zealous person. I wish they wouldn't have done that. Why did they do that? Because they're so excited about the cause. And oftentimes when you're excited about the cause, you don't care who you have to run over to get across the finish line. That's just aftermath of your wake. So yes, he was incredibly full of zeal in this situation. Where did we leave off with Saul? And again, when I say Saul, Paul, it's interchangeable. Sometimes it's just automatic. Where did we leave off with him last week? Do we remember? What's that? Chapter 9, verse 8. Verse 9, right in there. He just got knocked off the donkey that's not there, right? If you remember what we learned about Paul, he was murderous. He was ravaging. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, he is still breathing threats and murder. He ravaged the church, Acts 8, 1. He was dragging men and women, didn't care who they were, 
but we're going to incarcerate everybody that we find that belongs to the way. So you don't just have some guy that's off his rocker. You don't just have somebody who got it wrong for a time. You've got somebody who the system is behind in order to bring down as many people as possible. Now, if you remember, Saul was on his way to where? Damascus. We have a map. Because I want to show you where Damascus is. Sometimes we see this. If you don't have a Bible that has maps in the back, get a new Bible, okay? You need a Bible with maps. Now, you might have a hard time seeing this. Down here is Jerusalem. Everybody see this here? You have the Salt Sea. You have the Jordan River that runs up. It runs from the Sea of Galilee that's up in the top here. So you have Judea, Samaria, Galilee up in that part. But everybody see Damascus over here on the side? When Stephen was stoned to death, And when the church either witnessed this before them or had heard about it through the prayer chain, okay, they ran. In fact, it says everyone but the apostles ran from Jerusalem. Now we have uh, the rest of Acts 8 is chronicling Philip the evangelist, which is fantastic. So they weren't complacent when they ran. But they got out of town. And this is how far they went. So in order for Saul to be able to stretch into these regions, and to be able to effectively squash this resistance. He needed authority. He needed the religious head honchos of the day to sign actual papers, probably notarized, and send them off on their way so that he could incarcerate them. And this is when Jesus decided that he was going to stop him in his tracks, literally. So to pick up with some of this, and I don't think I have it up on there, but If you would look with me real quick at verse uh, 8. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Mandatory fasting time for Saul. Remember, this is an incredible contrast. We went from a murderous personality. You know his chest was puffed out because he had authority to do everything he wanted to get accomplished. Knocked to the ground, unable to see, and will not eat. Now here's an amazing thing. This is an anomaly in Scripture. We don't know anybody else that comes to faith in Jesus in this way. We understand now that we have the completed New Testament that it's our job to go out and make disciples. It's our job to share the gospel with people. But at this time, God has specific plans for this man. And so he takes his feet out from under him. He lays him low. He changes his life. Now here's an interesting thing. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus. The gospel message had obviously reached that far. This is a good thing. You've probably got the inner workings of a small house church. It's going on. But there's one particular person that the Lord has in mind. And it says here, he's he's named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. Can you imagine if you responded that way? Jeremy, ah! right? That's us. But notice, 
It's not tricky. He is in waiting. See, here's the interesting thing about Ananias and probably why God selected him for this particular task. It's probably because Ananias was ready and waiting for whatever God wanted to have done. Now, here's the beauty of it. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. Okay, Lord, I know where that's at. And inquire at the house of Judas. Oh, yeah. His wife brought that broccoli casserole to the potluck last week. I know Judas. That was some good eating, right? For a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. What, Lord? You sure I'm not just looking for Saul? No, you're looking for Saul of Tarsus. Hmm. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord. Notice he starts respectfully. If you're going to disagree with God, at least start the conversation respectfully. Lord, no. You know, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. How much harm? Everybody remember the harm that we discussed? Trying to get them to blaspheme? Everybody remember that? Badgering them and belittling them? Murdering them? Hey, we're going to kill such and such Christian today. Well, here, let me go ahead and put my vote in as saying affirmative. If they belong to the way, they need to die. This is not the rational thoughts of society. Yet sadly, it's not too far detached from where we are today. It's really not. Just because we don't have it in spades here in America doesn't mean that it's not prevalent somewhere else. Sad thing, in most situations, people don't vote for that. It just happens. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Notice that word had traveled well. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Notice how Ananias identifies Christians. They're known as all who call on the name of Jesus. Now here's the amazing thing. I know this is really simple, but it's a really important application for us to think about. Because oftentimes we sit and we're kind of, well, what's the Lord going to do with me? Well, maybe the Lord has something for, well, maybe, you know, the Lord can't have anything for me. I have noticed in my life that one of the hardest things for me to accept is God's acceptance of me. Because I deem myself unacceptable. You know what's amazing? In Christ, God does not. My thinking is one of unbelief. God's thinking is one of because you're in my son, you are not just accepted, you are unconditionally accepted and lavished in grace. <laughs> me? Yes, dummy. He says it lovingly to me. You! God uses people. You ever thought about that? God uses people. We don't know anything else about Ananias except for this. He sweeps on to Scripture and then he goes away just as quickly as he came. But I can tell one thing from his life here, he was faithful. God said, do it, do it. Was it natural for him to have doubts? Well, yeah, physical life hangs in the balance here. Hold on, God. I've heard a lot about this man. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, you got it wrong. That's not the, 
These are, this is not the guy I'm looking for. He didn't try to pull some Jedi mind trick on God, did he? Lord, I've heard about this guy. The stakes are high if I approach this relationship. You want me to lay hands on a man who may have murdered somebody that Ananias knew. Maybe have been a family member. Maybe that's how close to home the ravaging of the church and the breathing threats hit. But here's what I love about this, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. (laughs) Notice he doesn't say, Ananias, understand. They're there, little lamb. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, go. Go. This is important for us to stop and and, and take a look at. Because as we go, we see little applications here. God uses people, yes. In fact, the, the profundity of God using people. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did he use any people to do that? No, he just spoke it. But have you ever noticed from that point on, once there was people on the earth, he always wants to use people to get his will accomplished? He desires for you and I to lock arms and to partner with him in all the grand, glorious, and supernatural things that he wants to see unfolded in this life. He wants to use you. He wants to use me. You say, well, that's not right. No, it's not right. It's grace. Grace isn't right. It is. It is undeserved favor, lavished upon people who have no business being anywhere near the presence of holiness. But the only reason why we do is because he invites us to come and he makes a way. So Ananias is in this situation. He's going to be used by God. He has some doubts. That's okay. But notice that God is really clear. Go. Too often when we're waiting for God to work with us, when he tells us how he needs us in his plan, we don't go. We bring in Ananias part two and we argue with his will. Everybody remember Moses when he was called? Everybody remember that chapter? Five times he gives God's reasons why he should look for somebody else. He just appeared to him in a burning bush it doesn't consume. And he has the audacity when God says, I want you to go do this. God, I don't talk so well. Well, God, surely there's got to be somebody else around here. Well, God, they're not going to accept me. Well, God, who should I say sent me? Who are you anyway? I mean, how should I tell them this? Good grief. You know just as well if you were God in that situation, like, you're right, I got the wrong guy. Just go back to your sheep, right? Sometimes we feel like God would treat us like that. Oftentimes, the simple way to connect all this together is just to go when he says go. Now, here's what's amazing, because it's a second application we need to pull from this. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. These two verses have an incredible amount packaged in this. Number one, it's a very interesting point that is often more times true than not. When we are in a situation where we are called to something, every single person is called in Christ's name to something or someone, some people group. No one is exempt from the call. It could be even something as, I'm just called to be a faithful mother and raise children. 
fantastic. If that's your call, God is the one who called you to it. Maybe it's the fact that you are to be dropped out in a tribe somewhere and spend years learning the language, creating an alphabet, and transcribing the scriptures for them. Fantastic. One call is not any greater than the other. They're not. If it came from God, it's on equal footing. But what's interesting about this, this principle, notice that God hasn't told this to Saul yet. Everybody see that? Ananias has got insider information. He could easily go to his bookie. I bet that Paul's going to be called to go to the Gentiles and the kings and the Jews. How about it? That's not where I wanted to go with that, but still. Oftentimes, whatever you're called to, whoever you're called to in your life, comes through other people. It comes from them recognizing your call first. It comes from them identifying of where you need to go before you ever do. Let me, case in point, I remember it was about December, November. I'm in the back of a U-Haul truck that has no heat. So I've got the door open, the heat on high, trying to blast those little old vents to come through to warm me up because I fill snack machines and drink machines for a living. That's what I do. I'm freshly married, so I'm as green as can be. Think I know everything and know nothing, right? Yeah. I just got a smile. She knows. I know later on she'll be like, honey, your, your sermon was so truthful today. It was unbelievable. So, and somebody's preaching on the radio, and I got struck with this. I'm supposed to preach. Oh, my gosh, it's what I'm supposed to do. And I picked up my phone, and I called real quick, and I said, honey, I think I'm supposed to preach. She goes, I already knew that. It is a true story. She said, I already knew that. And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> no, I didn't know that until this moment. God uses other people in order to confirm whatever your calling is. That calling will never be apart from sharing the gospel or discipling people. Why? Because during the church age, that's the only two things that God has for people to do. He didn't make it hard. Share the gospel. Train them up in the faith. Train them up to share the gospel so that they would train others in the faith to share the gospel. Pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. Here's another interesting thing. is Notice what's said about this. He's chosen. He's a chosen instrument. The Greek word is ekologē. That's where we get the word elect from. Notice that Paul's not chosen to go to heaven when he dies. That's not in the Scriptures. Notice that he's chosen for a task, a ministry, a vocation, a job, a calling that needs to be fulfilled. Election in the Bible is always to ministry, calling, task, vocation, something like that. Every single time. It never fails. Notice that he's Jesus's. Does everybody see that? He's a chosen instrument of who? Mine. Everybody see that it's capitalized? If, you, if you've got a Bible it's not capitalized, get in there with an ink pen and fix it. He's Jesus's. I'm taking him for me. I've got things I want him to do. Saul can waste a whole lot of his life doing what he wants to do. Guess what? I've got things for him to do. He belongs to me. How do you know that? Because he's blood-bought. 
because the price was paid for him is the reason why. I don't even know we're going to get through my sermon today. He's bought by the blood. So he automatically has ownership over him. How about the next thing here? Notice what it says here. He's not just a cho- he's not just chosen, he's a chosen instrument of mine. Watch this. To bear my name every time. Every time. Whoever you are called to minister and serve, it is always the fact that you belong to Jesus and you're called to bear his name. Years ago, I was in a small little sliver of the Christian music scene, what would be considered the underground music scene, because I played in a punk band, okay? And so we would go to shows and we would share the gospel. We started hearing all of this stuff coming from these other bands who were more popular. Well, we're Christians in a band. We're not really a Christian band. It's just like you can be a Christian and a plumber, but not necessarily advertising yourself as a Christian plumber. And I thought, what in the world is going on here? We are called to bear the name of Christ regardless of what we're using. What in the world are we thinking here? And you come to find out many years later, they're actually on the road to rejecting Christ because it became too hard for them. That's a very interesting and incredible transition. Let me give you an example. Anybody ever heard? You Older people, love me, okay? I like the cathedrals too, so calm down. Younger people, you ever heard of the band P.O.D.? Fable on Death. Okay, the church where I used to pastor in that building, they used to come through in a crappy little van and play shows down in the basement of it. And they used to preach Jesus relentlessly. And they would go to the mall and preach Jesus relentlessly. That's how my best friend got saved, is he heard the gospel from them. And he came to faith in Christ. They used to have a song called Abortion is Murder. They had no problem telling people at a concert with tons of people, this is wrong, God is not pleased by this, every life is precious, every life is created in the image and likeness of God. Why? Because back then they hadn't lost sight that they were to bear his name. But when they got signed to a record label, all of a sudden you had all these names for God but God. The message changed, and we stopped bearing his name. You think the Lord's pleased with that? No. Why? Because the calling is to bear his name. I just want to know what I'm called to in life. Well, here's a great starter. You're called to bear the name of Christ. That's where we all start. We all start with Jesus. Every time. Every time we start with Jesus. Now, here's what I love about this is that he shows Ananias specifics. Now, they seem specific, but actually it's incredibly general. Notice, he'll bear my name before Gentiles. So that's everybody who's not a Jew. They come up first. Kings, so that's another level of Gentiles maybe. And the sons of Israel, that's Jews. You know what, guys? There's nobody left. That's what's amazing. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Aren't we told that? You will be my witnesses, right, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Who's that? Everybody. But he gives this particular order for a reason. I'm taking Paul. Why? Well, number one, he's got Jewish heritage and upbringing. So he's got that down. He's been educated well as far as the philosophies of how that works in the Old Testament scriptures. But because he's a Roman citizen, he is able to have two visas. Everybody see that? He's got dual citizenship somewhere. 
So he's a major player that I can use in order to introduce the gospel to the Gentiles. Now that hasn't really happened yet. Nobody's talked to a guy named Cornelius. Nobody's seen a vision of a sheep being let down saying, don't call anything that I've made clean unclean. Go, go talk to these people. Peter's not coming given the testimony of saying, and they all came to faith in Christ just like we did because the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did on us. Who are we to argue with God? None of that's happened yet. So I imagine in Ananias' mind, as a Jewish believer in Christ, and it's not open to the Gentiles yet, he's sitting here thinking, wow, this is a lot more than what I may be thinking right now about what this guy is going to be used for. It's not only that. Look what he says next in this verse. Verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer. Don't shy away from the word. I will show him how much he must suffer. Why? Because he's always right. Is that what it says? No. Because he's just as cantankerous as can be and he's out to win arguments and hurt people. No, a lot of times in the flesh, that's how we handle situations. For my name's sake. Not only is he to bear my name, but he will suffer for my name's sake. Suffer. 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 Is every Christian called to suffering? No, not every Christian. But we're also told that those that desire to be godly, to grow in godliness, will suffer in Christ Jesus. It will happen. Why is this? Sometimes we forget that the world is run by Satan. Sometimes we forget that behind all the smiles and all the campaigns and all the push for unity and oneness and happiness and all this stuff, that there's actually an underlying being who has carefully and strategically orchestrated a plan in order to exalt himself at the expense of people. Satan is not anybody's friend. Satanists have always confounded me. Well, we worship Lord Satan. Hail Satan! Well, what's he doing for you? Nothing. Everybody realize that most of the information that Satanists get about their belief system comes from Revelation? Anybody think that's weird? You hate the Bible, but yet the major things you believe about it are from the Bible. That seems a little contradictory to me. Anybody ever heard the name Anton LaVey? Okay. He's the one who wrote the Satanic Bible in 1969, founded the, the, the Church of Satan. After a little bit of time, the Church of Satan started to split a little bit because they didn't feel that Anton was evil enough to lead them. What was amazing was he got the upper hand because when he died, they found out that he lied to them about all kinds of things in his past. And they were mad about it. I thought he's a Satanist. What's he supposed to do, tell you the truth? Anybody else think that's ironic? Like, he lied to us. Your father's the father of lies. Of course he did. Sounds like he was the most obedient dude out of all of you. All you truth tellers in the church of Satan need to sit down. Anybody else think, that's just how my mind works, whatever. So here's a great thing. I love that Ananias doesn't argue anymore. He's got some incredible information. We're learning a lot about how God views Paul's future and his calling. So he's going to use Ananias to get this work done. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road to which you were coming, he has sent me to you to regain your sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately 
there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Notice he was saved before he was baptized. That's important because people are getting it wrong today. And he took food and was strengthened. That word strengthened has been put there by Luke on purpose. Why? How did Paul, sorry, forgive me. How did Saul come into Acts 9? Breathing threats and murders. You ever known anybody like that? And then to be absolutely laid low. We talk about the idea of being laid uh, prostrate. It's prostrate, guys. Prostrate on the ground. Some of you have come to me and said, yeah, I was laid out prostrate on the ground. I said, no, you weren't. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Prostrate on the ground. You laid him low, blind. And now God is strengthening him in a different way. He had to dry him out before he could build him up. Look at this. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. That had to be a fun first meeting. Hey, guys, y'all know Saul? Yeah. Why is he here? He's one of us now. No one in that room went, okay. No. There was fear and trembling all around, okay? It just went silent, kind of like when you talk. Yes. That's right. <clears throat> Verse 20, I love you, man. I'm just missing. Give me a hug after, after we're done. But notice what he says. Verse 20, and immediately, 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 nothing standing in the way. The three days were done. Paul had lunch. He hung out with fellow believers, and he got to work. Look at this. Immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus. Notice where he started, in the synagogues. Why? Somebody help me out. Why? What's that? Okay, so he's got some some home ground there. But in Damascus, not that kind of home ground. He's got a Jewish background and upbringing, right? Here's the amazing thing. That's where he was trained. If anything, Judaism embraced the Old Testament. Now, let's remember, let's not get so 20th century, the 21st century, we forget about this stuff, okay? They didn't have a New Testament. So it's not like, okay, you know, Saul's here, everybody turn to Matthew. They didn't do that, okay? So he starts with people that already have a base beginning belief in an almighty creator, understand all the major personalities of the Bible, see the unfolding of the plan of God and the promise of a Messiah who will come and set up a kingdom all throughout. Man, this is great groundwork that he doesn't have to lay again. He can kind of start in the middle of that and take off running in order to bring and connect all the dots to Jesus of Nazareth. So notice, he goes and he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Did anybody get saved from that? Do you share the gospel today? You're like, hey, he's the Son of God. Car is like, whoa, I'm born again. Is that how that happens? No, if he goes to the synagogues first and he brings up the idea of the Son of God, what's he going after? You might know. You might know. I'm glad you asked. Yes, that's true. But anybody know why the phrase Son of God would have been used in particular? Let's turn to Psalm chapter 2. We're off the map now. Psalm 2.
Next week will be part two of this. Psalm 2. Let's just start in verse 1. It's a short psalm. This is something that's known as a messianic psalm. I love the fact that if you were to study the book of Psalms, this is number two. Number one, get your mind straight. Number two brings up the fact that there is a king. Okay? Look at this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth. The kings of where? The earth. Are these not people of which Paul is commissioned to go and bear the name and suffer for the sake of Christ? Think about this. Okay? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. Notice together. In other words, they had a meeting, asked what one another thought about what they should do about particular situations, and there was no wisdom amongst a lot of them, okay? Against Yahweh and against his, who? Anointed. His Mashiach. His Messiah. The anointed one of God. What does the world do in response to the gospel? They get together and they decide to devise worldly, fleshly plans against Yahweh's plan to install his king, his anointed one. Sounds evil, right? Evil category. Notice here's what they say. Let us tear their fetters apart. What are fetters? Anybody know that? What are they? No? No? Everybody ever seen when you lead a horse? Everybody seen that? They got, they're pulling a wagon, and they've got these little things on here, kind of like the little little barriers for your mailbox so, you know, Johnny Smacky doesn't beat it up at Halloween or whatever. Everybody remember that? And it, and it keeps, keeps the eyes from going off in other directions. Let's tear off their fetters. Think about that imagery here. The world, run by Satan, desires to tear off the fetters of God and his king. We've got to get them on a path other than the destination goal of establishing his authority. Because we don't want it. We don't want the authority of Jesus. Look here. Let us cast their fetters apart, or tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. Whatever restraint God may be putting on us in order to flesh out his will on earth, get rid of that. I don't want any part of God controlling me. Now here's what I love. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens pulls up his comfy couch and says, how does that make you feel? Notice that God doesn't Dr. Phil this moment. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What in the world are these people thinking? The Lord scoffs. And notice that it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Adonai, the master. The master scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, pause. Why does he got to use anger and fury about how God's responding to this? Does it not sound like that God was giving them the opportunity to go in his direction? God always does that in initial introductions with people. When he comes into somebody's life, he gives them the opportunity to follow him where he's going. It's not until they rebel hatefully and say, I want nothing about it, thinking God has to take a different approach. This is what brings anger and fury into the situation. Look what it says. Uh, Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my who? My king. Now watch this. It's very important. Upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my what? 
son. The king is God's what? Everybody see that? I, uh, sorry, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Who are the nations? It's all those other people who said, we don't want anything to do with you. We'll break off the fetters and cast off the cords. Guess what? All those people who were in rebellion will turn around and will actually be Jesus' inheritance when he takes the throne. Does everybody see that? Boy, God's cool. If you came here this morning, I hope you walk away going, God is cool. Okay? Look what else he says here. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That is swift and certain judgment. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, watch this, because here's the gracious call of God for repentance for this people. Now, therefore, O kings, you who were scoffing, show discernment. Think clearly about this situation of what's getting ready to happen for all of eternity. I'm going to install my king, and he is my son. So it's not just regal, it's personal. Everybody see that? Look what he says. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now go back to Acts 9. Do you think that people who hung out in the synagogue and especially the rabbis knew that verse? I think so. So look what it says here. Second part of verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. I'm talking to y'all about the king. Now this had to be huge. Because you know somebody was tapping somebody on the shoulder and said, wasn't this guy just here to kill us last week? What is going on? Have people lost their minds? No, they got saved. That's the difference. In fact, this is an important lesson for us to, to, to take note of. Watch how this happens. Verse, verse 21. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus. That word confounding is incredible in the Greek. It means it put them into consternation. When's the last time you were put into consternation? Great, okay. Yeah, kind of figured. It's like a hornet's nest up here, I understand. But notice what he's doing, proving, not just stating, not just teaching, not just telling, proving. How did he get to this proving point? Think about all this schooling that was used in one direction that God has now flipped around and said, this will be for my glory. He's stirring them up and he is proving what? That this Jesus is the Christ. Remember, it's not his last name, it's his title, that he's the Messiah. We're talking about the Son of God. We're talking about the Anointed One of God. We're talking about the King. That's what we're talking about here. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a great deal between zeal and 
passion. When Paul came into this situation, when Saul came into the situation, he came in with zeal. He doesn't care who he's got to hurt to get it done. He's not thinking before he speaks, but he's methodical with the end goal. I will accomplish this. I need this from this person. I need this from this person. I need this from this person. And it doesn't matter who falls in my wake. I'm just going to make sure and get it done. I mean, think about it, guys. Stop for a second. We, we, we love the apostle who wrote 1 Corinthians 13. We love him. We know he loves us because he prayed for us a lot in the Scripture. This was a bloodthirsty man. A bloodthirsty man. He would not simply stop. Jerusalem was not enough. I've got to have Damascus too. I've got word that Christians have fled there after what happened with Stephen. Let me go get him. Let me go get him. I want him. Okay, Saul, go. He's the bulldog of the Pharisees. And then Jesus turns him into a puppy, right? And sets him on a brand new trajectory where it's not about zeal anymore. It's about passion. It's not about zeal, it's about passion. Notice that zeal comes in and knocks down everything it can and takes no prisoners. Get the job done. Task-oriented. Passion walks in because it's all about caring for people. Where previously the modus operandi was death, now it's life and peace. What makes somebody go from zeal to passion? Jesus. In fact, not just that, but Jesus did something incredible to him. He took him and he actually placed the Holy Spirit within him. Because Paul has no strength. Paul has no mind. Paul has no will. that will ever be what God desires to have manifest. He is a chosen vessel of mine. And he will bear my name before Gentiles and kings, and Jews. And I, and real quick, the I there, it's emphatic in the Greek. Here's what he's saying. I, Jesus, will personally show Paul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What does Paul say later? I consider all things lost for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. What in the world changes a person? It's got to be supernatural. Because Lord knows we've tried every diet plan, exercise regimen, and positive thinking seminar that there is on the face of the earth. The world has nothing on this. Nothing. So here's some points to remember as we wrap up. Number one, God loves to use people. He wants to use you. In fact, here's it goes with the second one. God not only wants to use people, He wants to use you and have somebody else confirm the calling of which you are to be about. You have to have your brothers and sisters in Christ in order to pour in you to help discern direction. Why? Because you're not the only person that God talks to. He talks to your brothers and sisters. Calling is a body endeavor. Number, Number three, if you're worried about that person that is so full of zeal, pray for them so that they will get passion. And the way they get passion is by being introduced to Jesus. Maybe you're somebody here today and you're like, man, zeal just kind of describes it for me. Guess what? You need passion. The zeal is without knowledge. 
got to have passion. And that only comes one way and one way only. The introduction of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, period. That's the only way they get to change. The question we have to ask is, where are we in this? Are we here to help somebody else? Are we called to help a brother and sister to encourage them to greater things? Are we somebody who maybe is not for sure of our calling and we need somebody else to be speaking in our life and so we need to be praying about what that might be? Are we somebody so ate up on our own agenda that we left Jesus out of our direction? Important thing to pray about. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you use people. Lord, as imperfect as we are, Father, you desire to do supernatural work through us, that it's divine, that it's that it's moved by your agenda and by the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask, Lord, that maybe we are believers in Christ here who are going to be used by your hand to pour into others and to encourage them and to help them solidify their calling. All of us is to be used in some way towards this greater end. We are all called to bear your name. Maybe we don't know what that is, and maybe that's where we need to be asking it. Father, maybe if we find ourselves operating in zeal, that's so much of the flesh. Even as someone who is redeemed, maybe we're just simply not asking what you want. What a mistake that is. So God, I pray you bring that to our understanding, our hearts. Let us wrestle with that. But Father, don't leave us alone, please. Don't leave us alone without that thought manifesting into a surrender to you. That's what we desperately need. Your will to bear your name know who we're called to. And if it entails suffering, so be it, Lord. You will give the grace at the proper time. You will give the help at the proper time. You will give us what to say at the proper time because you are God. Thank you for how you love us. In your name. Amen.